people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Jasné. Vo vyšných vlkodlakách sa dejú čudné veci. Kde je? Kdo, pane? Vona. Záhady, hrôzy, tajomstvá. A to všetko kvôli opere. Odhalte tajemství hradu v Karpatech v zlatej klasike Oldřicha Lipského. V nedelu popoludní na jednotke. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Owen. Hello. Happy Czech Tembo. Also joining us in the booth is Ms. Emily Barney. The civil shirt servant should only sing the national anthem. On this special Czech Tembo episode, we are looking at Oldrich Lipsky's 1981 film, The Mysterious Castle in the Carpathians. Based on the novel by Jules Verne from 1892, which may have inspired Bram Stoker's 1897 book, Dracula, The film tells the story of Count Taleke of Toloko, played by Mikhail Dolk. Why do I do this to myself? Why do I volunteer to say these actors' names when I know I'm going to just struggle through it? Dolkolomansky. He's a blowhard opera singer who, along with his manservant, stopped by the village where he learns about the nearby Devil's Castle, which is said to be haunted. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, please turn off the podcast and come back after you've seen the film. So, Jonathan, when was the first time you saw The Mysterious Castle in the Carpathians, and what did you think? I first saw it in 2015, and it was at the time that I was researching an essay on Dela Hasn't Eaten Dinner Yet, and so it was just a bunch of films by Lipsky that I was watching uh, as preparation for the essay. And I think because it was in that context that I saw it, it probably didn't register as strongly as it should have done because I think because of the fact that the two films are in many ways closely related and this is not exactly a sequel, but almost like a revisiting of similar ideas and and, and a similar style, it kind of blended into a Adela a bit. And so I think it took a few more viewings and a few more years to really properly appreciate it for what it is, I think. And I think what I've come to love about it is the gothic atmosphere that it has, which I think it genuinely does have, as well as being this this very crazy comedy. Um, Dr. Lemansky's performance in the lead role, which I think actually surpasses his role even as Nick Carter in Adela. And some of the wordplay and stuff, which I think is very inaccessible, at least to a non-native viewer on on a first viewing. So yeah, it's something that I've come to love more and more, I think, the, the more that I've seen it. And Emily, how about yourself? I first saw it early in 2021. So we were kind of deep in pandemic times. I was just watching movies and I watched three Olczyklipski films kind of in a row. I Killed Einstein Gentleman, then Mysterious Castle, and then Adela. In that context, it's kind of 
the least crazy of the three. So I, I enjoyed it, but maybe not as much as the other two, which, you know, it's a bonkers movie on its own. But um, at the time, you know, it, it kind of faded in the background, kind of like what Jonathan was saying. But so it's been great to revisit it for the podcast because it's very rewatchable. Um, there's just so much you kind of see each time you watch it again. And now it's kind of one of my favorite Lipsky films. And I'm more of a horror kind of, you know, weird person myself. So, you know, I really love just all the yeah gothic elements of it. And so I enjoy it very much now. Yeah, I don't remember the first time I saw this one, but I remember before I watched it, it was described to me as there's this inventor. They really focused on the inventor character, whoever was telling me about it. It's like, there's this inventor who is so far ahead of everything else and has all of these in inventions that shouldn't exist in the time that this movie was set, you know, in the 1890s or whenever it was written, they shouldn't have closed circuit television. They shouldn't have these listening devices, these TVs that they're able to put in things, but then everything is just slightly off. Like the listening devices have to look like ears. The viewing devices look like eyes. And I kept thinking it was going to be more like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, where I think it's the, um, Gary Oldman character keeps figuring out things about like physics before he really should know them. Things like, oh, well, if I drop this rock and this feather at the exact same time, you know, they should land at the exact same time because of, you know, just the weight of them is the same. He doesn't take into account the air resistance and he drops them. And of course, the rock lands first and then the feather slowly floats down. You would think this would fall faster than this, wouldn't you? And you'd be absolutely right. And it's constantly him coming up with these like little ideas of how things actually work, even though he's in the wrong time. So I thought that it was going to be much more of that. I didn't realize it was going to be what it is, which I love how we want to like this main character, but he's such a dick. <laughs> he's just from the minute that we meet him and just him with his little tiny pistol that he's got and just that he he just thinks that he's so so great that he's this opera singer that he makes poor his manservant ignac he makes him carry all of these things on his back meanwhile he's got nothing on his back at all it's like what come on dude i mean i think in regard to the inventions i think it deals in a really inventive way with, I guess, what would have been the problem for a film adaptation of this book being made in the late 70s or early 80s, because I guess in the book, a lot of the inventions, I guess, are just a little bit ahead of the technology of the late 19th century. So I guess it was working with you know the new inventions of like electricity and the telephone Remember that in the book, I think it does mention Edison at least once, and it has to kind of like remind the reader that this is not set like in the, you know, the 17th century or the, the 18th century, that this is sort of the present day and that this is the time of technological wonders. And so I guess those technologies would have been amazing at the time that the book was written. And I guess the problem for, uh, you know, somebody adapting it in the late 20th century is that these things now are banal. And I think the fact that the technologies in the film are so crazy and that they're 
designed in this in such a bizarre way, courtesy, of course, of Jan Schwankmeyer. And I think it manages to sort of preserve that sense of the bizarre and also make them funny, though, as well at the same time. And I think it treads that line between being amazing, but also just being silly. And, and I think that's kind of like a balance that the film gets right in other ways as well, that can kind of like invest in it as a story while also sort of seeing it as ridiculous and uh, yeah as you said i mean there's nothing more ridiculous than the protagonist i think and and what was really interesting to read about was that apparently the actor was not the desired choice of lipsky i think that lipsky although dutch lemansky had done adela before that and had been brilliant as nick carter i think lipsky had a little bit of doubt about whether he could pull this character off which does seem strange in in retrospect i can't think of anybody who would have been better in that role, really, because um, he just gets the absurdity of the character so well, I think. And also while having this weird kind of dignity somehow, I think that the, he has a wonderful face, which is almost a little bit like Keaton-esque, I think, almost this little bit of this Keaton-esque kind of stone face, which I think somehow just offsets how ridiculous he is as a character. And, and yeah, he's, he's just a wonderfully absurd protagonist, I think. I really can't imagine anybody else in this role. As you said that, I was like, well, who else would play this? I mean, he does hit it so well. And yeah, this is, it is a nice kind of counterpoint to Dinner for Adele that he is that, you know, boisterous Nick Carter and just so full of himself and so sure of himself. And he seems to have the goods in that movie, though he is played for laughs at times. But in this, he's this opera singer and he will take any opportunity in the world to sing opera and thinks that everybody it's odd because he thinks that everybody in the world knows who he is. But then when he gets to the little village, they seem to know who he is, which is odd for me. I was like, Oh, I thought they would not know anything about, about him though. I do like how, you know, you're talking about the language and when the innkeeper is just like, Oh, we've had toffs like you in here before. <laughs> I didn't take it so much that they knew who he was, just that they knew he's some rich, important man. Like, oh, you know. Just the way he carries himself really sets him apart. Okay. That makes sense. And I think he says, I think this Ignat says, Milosti at something, which indicates, yeah, that he has this like high status. And yeah, and then everybody is like in, in, in awe. <laughs> which is odd because in the original book, so the book starts off with this, uh, it starts off with the shepherd and he buys a, a telescope and happens to see that there's smoke coming from this nearby castle, which is supposed to be abandoned. And so he comes back to the village and he starts talking, Hey, I saw this thing. They don't believe him. They look, Oh wow. There is smoke coming from the castle and it sets off this whole adventure. Sets, it really captures the imagination of the local forester. Nick, I think his name is, and then also the local doctor, and they both go off to investigate stuff. And later on, after they have their little adventure where things end very poorly for them, a nobleman happens to come through. And yeah, just because he's a nobleman, people seem to treat him with just so much respect. They want him to come to their, like the wedding of the forester and his betrothed. They're just so into him just because he's a nobleman and they will try to listen to what he says. But at the same time, he just keeps laughing off all of the things that have happened to these people as superstition or there's a logical explanation for all this. 
And nobody wants to hear that. The village wants to believe in the supernatural, whereas he's just like, well, it sounds like this happened. It sounds like that happened. You know, and he doesn't know, of course, about things like the wire that comes from the castle all the way down to the inn, which is a two-way listening device where they actually will broadcast like uh, they the voice of the from the castle says to the forester don't do it you're going to be cursed if you leave and basically stay away from the castle but he is obsessed he wants to go and that character kind of becomes this um velia character here the local civil servant who i love this guy and i love that he's got like a slightly lazy eye so he always just looks goofy whenever i see him yeah, it's interesting that the book focuses so much more on the villagers. The doctor is a much bigger part. And I guess the screenwriter, Yuzhi Bedechka, he kind of wasn't interested in the villagers so much. So he wrote off, oh, the doctor can't come. The sacristan's cow is calving. <laughs> He's not in the movie at all. He just kind of wasn't really interested in them, which is interesting since Czech film has such a history of films about comedy films about villagers. But he just wasn't interested in that just kind of wrote them off that's one of the big differences i think isn't it that the book really takes a long time to bring in the the count i think he comes in more or less about halfway through and she's very strange i mean coming to the book from the film i think you're thinking like we are where when is he going to show up and yeah you have a lot of these other characters and I think that was one of the problems that Bodechka had when adapting the, the the book. I think he had a lot of trouble trying to find a, a shape for it and trying to kind of get the narrative going. And I guess that was his solution. And I think the Velia character is good because he is a kind of a conflation. One of the great things too, I think, is that he offsets the protagonist because, I mean, he seems like he is just this this sort of what we would call in England like a local yokel, but he turns out to be much more perceptive than the Count, which is kind of funny that, that he, uh, you know, the, the Count brings all this supposed sophistication and civilization and, of course, doesn't really notice anything. Everything has to be pointed out to him throughout the story. Yeah, in the book, he's he's much more of a hero and he, he just kind of takes charge and is like, I don't want to go to the castle, but we have to investigate. I'm going to go. And yeah, so in the movie, he's of course, just led by his desire to hear this sweet voice again. But um, yeah, he's he's kind of a dum-dum <laughs> in the movie. Yeah, because there's this whole thing. Once he finds out that the castle is owned by Gortz, Robert Gortz, I think it's how they translate his name in this. And he has history with Gortz, and we get to learn the whole history of stuff. And it's that part, I will say that this is, an interesting adaptation because there are a lot of things that are very faithful to the book, but then there are other parts where we just go off in completely new directions. But this whole idea of the count just happens to be going through this village and learns that the castle nearby is owned by his former rival or his current rival because he hates this guy because he blames Gortz for the death of what they call her in the book? La Silla, I think it is. But in the movie, she's Salsa Verde. <laughs> so every time they say Salsa Verde, I'm, I'm just laughing, which is great. I mean, that's one of many things that is going on in this movie. And like even what's his name when he's on stage? The Canto Canto, which is like the Il Canto Canto, the, the singer. So just happens to be going through this village where his enemy 
is or where he owns this castle and he's like i'm gonna see if uh he thinks at first that it's just thieves that are up in there robbers that are taking over the castle and he's gonna bring the police and get this all taken care of but then while he's going to the castle he starts to hear this song of his beloved she was an opera singer just like him but in the book he's not an opera singer he's just count kind of thing he doesn't sing opera with her on stage but in the movie they are fellow opera singers and he is obsessed with her that she disappeared or she died but then her body was stolen and Gort's left a note for him so he's now obsessed with this and that's really what kicks the story into gear and it's interesting like you said that doesn't happen till halfway through the book the book is oddly paced i have to say it's it's kind of a strange book and then when we get towards the end it just kind of fizzles out a little bit it doesn't really have a great great ending this is i would say and please the uh, people from the jules verne society don't don't punish me for this i think this is a lesser ver this feels like a lesser burn work to me yeah this was the first burn book i had read and not being an expert or anything i feel like okay i understand why i've never heard of this book before <laughs> you know it's likewise yeah i mean i only read it yeah in relation having having i guess studied the film i only came to it through the film yeah i don't think it's something i would have read you know without any other reason it's interesting that it has been adapted a few times considering that it is a very difficult book i think to adapt and i mean looking at the one of the other versions that was made, the Romanian version from the same year. I mean, it's interesting that that too has to invent this whole backstory because I guess that really reflects the fact that there's just not enough here, I think, without inventing other elements. And I think that, that as you say, the fact that in the book, he, the Count is not an opera singer and that then Budaj had to invent that whole sort of history about his relationship with Salsa Verde. I mean, I think that was, I think from what I've read, I think that was the point where it came to life. I think for Badechka, I think once he had found that element, he knew that it would work. And I think he had a lot of trouble initially trying to find his way into it. One of the other things I think that he worked on initially to try and sort of make it funny and to give it comedy was the language, because I think one of the really interesting aspects is the, the language that is spoken by the villagers. And uh, you hear it, especially with Velia. So basically, Telica is speaking Czech, pretty much standard Czech. And then the villagers speak this weird kind of mishmash of, I guess it's like Czech, Slovak. And it's more or less this kind of like card Slavic language, which I guess would have been understandable to a native audience, but just sounds strange. And and then you get little bits of like remate. I guess like Cod Romanian, like a lot of the names of things. It's like, I think you see Aparatula, for instance, when they're talking about like the TV set. And a lot of things have this kind of Cod Romanian feel to them. So that's another element that I guess Brodechka brought in, this kind of linguistic parody. And yeah, I think adds another layer to it. But again, that was something that I didn't really catch on a first viewing, I think. Yeah, I noticed that with any anytime there's text on the screen, I was like, that's not Czech. And then I would look it up and it's like, that's not Romanian either. It's just something he made up. So, <laughs> and you'll see there's like Czech subtitles sometimes when something's on screen. It's because the Czechs need to know what it says too. It's just nonsense. We get those weird moments where the villagers 
the the innkeeper says something about like his lordship should sit on his ass and then the, the count is like such a charming dialect and you see the innkeeper kind of put his hand up like oh no <laughs> i should have said that <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's like the joke that the innkeeper tells about the. I think it's about a general that he mentioned that stayed in this room, and uh, I think I wrote down how he says it in, I guess in this language, it's something like "bitvayishem prestral ala dobreshem bistal," which is like basically I, I very hard to translate, but a rough translation would be something like I, I shit all over the battle, but I slept well. But obviously, it doesn't sound good in English because you've got that nice kind of like rhyming couplet. In the original. So yeah, a lot of it is kind of like really untranslatable, I think, or very difficult to translate. Yeah, I was wor- I was curious about that drug that the count gives to Vilya, the where his fever disappears and he's just like, Oh yeah, this is an imported Slovak drug. And I'm like, is it aspirin? Like I don't know what it is that that he ends up giving him, but it is apparently a miracle cure. And again, science over the superstition of the villagers. I kind of took that again as as maybe it isn't something special. It's just him presenting it as it's important. You know, the 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 uh, Vilia's fiance is like imported. You know, and it's because I imagine you know Slovakia is kind of the more rural kind of area of the country. You know, they're not really known for their great achievements. So I think that was kind of a joke that it was a Slovak drug. You know, <laughs> that maybe it's just. I think that it, yeah, it's meant to sound like this, this yeah, very fancy, exotic thing, and it isn't because I guess Slovakia is not really that far from wherever this is meant to be. I guess it's not really very far, and as you say, yeah, not known maybe at this point for yeah, for, for very sophisticated medicines. I love the fiance. I love the fast motion of her knitting the sweater, and when she holds it up to him, and then looks at the picture, and the picture changes from him wearing his current outfit to wearing this new outfit that she's making for him and it changes into this color photograph. Just these like little things that go on in the movie are really nice. Or like when the the Count and his manservant are talking in his room and the Count's looking away from the window and out the window you see a rocket ship taking off. <laughs> Just like he's complete again, completely clueless that there's this huge light in the sky and nobody seems to notice that Orphanic, this character that we will meet shortly, that he is sending rockets out. And that was his 420th time, I think. Uh, and he's still missing the moon, but eventually he'll get it. He, he swears that he will. Yeah, this this time it won't fail. You know? <laughs> oh, and then you get old Tom, the uh, quote-unquote deaf and dumb guy in the village. Wow, that guy, that actor is amazing. The way that he moves his face and... Just his fake beard is beautiful. He seems to be the carrier of a lot of inventions. And I love the image of him going through the forest when he's taking message up to the castle and he's riding on that little scooter thing. And just the way that his cloak is covering it all and just the little smokestack is coming out the back. I love that. And I love the music during that part as well. The music in this movie is pretty fantastic. There's a lot of really good caper music, isn't there, I think, in that. Yeah, because there's even a scene later on with some people that work at the castle where it feels very Keystone Cops. And even the policemen themselves feel very Keystone Cops. Yeah, there's a lot of fast motion, isn't there, I think, at certain points. 
I mean, I, th- I think the act, yeah, the actor who plays Tom, and that's another name actually, which is is, is doesn't really translate as well because yeah, because it, I guess literally the name is it would be like Tom, uh, Tom Deaf and Dumb, which the translation is Tom Hook on Yemetz. Yemetz is also the word for German, so whether that's meant to indicate again, it's like this foreign kind of colonial presence in a way, and that actor is Augustin Kuban, who I think is probably. Best known, other than this, he's best known, I think, for playing the figure of death in uh, Deserter and the Nomads, the the Jakobisko film, which again, I guess, puts his puts his you know his, his appearance really to to great use. And yeah, he's just such a physically striking presence. Yeah, he so is, and I love when he's sneaking up on them in the forest when they're finally going to the castle, and him in that giant tree and everything, <laughs> or him with the. He's got that staff that has the two branches that come out that have the ears on them and then the giant eyeball at the top and the way he's just like moving himself back and forth. And then you get to see the signal being played in the castle because eventually we do get to see into the castle and we get to see that uh, it is Baron Gortz and his personal inventor, Orphanak, who's played by the one and only Rudolf Horshinsky. I've never seen Krasinski play this broad of a comic character, and I really kind of appreciate it just because I, you know, we've talked about him so many times on this show before. We talk about that his purring voice and just the way that he can play crazy and sane and you don't know exactly which one he is, you know, in the cremate or a murder check style. He plays such a different character than he does in this where he's got the super thick glasses plus the eye patch plus one arm is or the hand is cut off so he's got like all of these uh, kind of mr hand from enter the dragon type devices going on with his fake arm and yeah he's he's amazing i was thinking of the bathroom buddy and gremlins kind of at the end <laughs> i kind of keep messing up totally especially when he's like <laughs> trying to get that that knife to work his description's just kind of how it is in the book too, which is interesting. Um, just that's that's how he's written in the book. Like he looks crazy, but it's like that's kind of how it's written, you know. So yeah, I really appreciate that too. That yeah, he's just playing this really broad character and just giving it his all. I mean, you feel in a way that yeah, he didn't really even need to do this this movie because it's not. I guess it's only a supporting part, but yeah, he just puts everything into it. I think yeah, I mean, one of the really. Um, I think interesting things about the all the inventions is that yeah you have the like the ear you have the eye, and to me it kind of relates to the fact that you know you also have this obsession with the voice you know of the voice of Lestila, and there's always this kind of fetishistic quality to everything, and um, maybe significant at one point that I think Teleka describes one of the he kind of misdescribes one of these contraptions as an interesting folkloristic object, and it's almost like I think Badechka and Schwankmeyer are trying to kind of suggest that there is something very strangely kind of primitive or fetishistic about beneath all of this sophistication and this, you know, this pretense of being very civilized and, and highbrow, that there is something much more kind of primal and primitive lurking beneath that. And so for me, it's a movie that's constantly kind of attacking, you know, ideas of sophistication and it's it's this arrogance i guess isn't it this arrogance of the civilized man the supposedly civilized man who believes that he's better than everybody else and i think this is constant kind of undermining of all these pretensions to 
civilization or to progress. And I think it's quite a dark movie. I think what it's saying about you know progress and science and and culture, it, it's really quite a, it's quite a bleak message. Ultimately, I think you know Berdechka, like he kind of wrote Adela as how Eastern Europe views the West, but this movie was how Western Europe views the East. And you you hear these kind of little microaggressions that Count Telica says, you know, oh, oh, these people. He kind of reminded me a bit of um, Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks when he first arrives, just, oh, the trees and oh, these simple people. And, you know, that's just how he navigates this this region. I think it's very smart that they make him into much more of an egotist than he is in the book because he becomes evenly matched for the Baron because the Baron, like you're saying, is very, you know, he he thinks that he deserves all these things. He's got his his personal inventor. He's got all of this technolo- technological advantage. He's very full of himself. Meanwhile, Teleke of Taloko is full of himself as well. Both in the book and in the movie, they get rid of Ignatz pretty quickly. He goes to find the police, but I think it makes sense that they keep Villa with the count. So it's like basically two against two with that. And then also I like that Villa is in love with Salsa Verde as much as the count is, even though he's just had the one encounter, but he can't get the song out of his head. He just keeps seeing the image of her in her full opera regalia singing this aria, which he happened to spy through a window before the chain that he's holding on to becomes electrified and makes him drop, which again is very much like it is in the book. I think, yeah, I think my only problem with the film is that it doesn't have enough of Vladimir Brodsky, I think, because I think the way it sets it up is you imagine that he's going to play a much more important role and that he's going to be almost like the kind of Dr. Watson, although I guess maybe a more perceptive Dr. Watson to to the the main character. And then he's, as you say, pretty quickly dispatched and really replaced, I guess, by the Velia figure as the sort of second fiddle. But yeah, I think that's true that there is this sort of mirroring of the protagonist and then of Gortz. And I guess they represent in a way the two, it's the two faces of supposed civilization, isn't it? It's like high culture and then science and technology. I think there is this yeah, as I say, there is this sort of constant kind of critique and satire going on, I think, about the the pretensions of those things. And I mean, I've, from what I, I've found out, I think Badechka was not really a big fan of opera. I think he he personally had this feeling that opera in, in the sort of 20th century, that it was kind of ridiculous. And, and, and he apparently liked opera music, but he didn't really care much for actually watching opera. So I think there is this constant pricking of pretension of high culture, especially opera. And I guess also in regard to science, I think at this point, I guess at the time when Byrne was writing, I mean, one could be maybe optimistic about the, you know, the promise of science and of technology. But I think by this point, there is a sort of cynicism. And what's interesting is that there are those two, there's a couple of references to the, the technical revolution, aren't there? Or, or the, at one point, I think, I think it's Gortz who mentions that the scientific technical or scientific technical counter-revolutionaries. And there is a perhaps a cheeky little dig there at, you know, communism itself, I think, as this promise of, you know, this progress and modernity, which has not come to pass. The costume that the Count wears, when he gets that telegram and he has that ridiculous like swan headdress that moves. <laughs> I don't know if that's an actual opera or... <laughs> 
does he fly to to see her because it looks like it starts to move and then next thing you know he's joining her on stage or he's he's they show him on a train <laughs> oh that's uh, right or, or, that's or right. sort of like a coach or something but but yeah there's like a scene of the the wings flapping the headdress before he takes off i really like that that we have his flashback where he shows showing his point of view here he's narrating it and then later on we get her flashback which is very odd because she has no agency in this movie whatsoever but we get her flashback and she starts to narrate it and we get to see what happened after they parted and we get to see what a sex pest the baron is i mean i love that whole sequence especially the editing of him starting off in the back of the theater and then moving closer 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 to the camera in all of those opera boxes and him holding his ear i mean milos is it milos kopechki that plays the villain he's fantastic and i love how we have her but then i noticed in that voiceover that the count starts to take over the the voiceover of that flashback and it's like come on she has nothing this poor woman poor salsa verde she's just an object and at the end she's not even an object she's just uh, a fantasy she has no corporeality other than the corpse that was kept inside of this room and then as soon as she's exposed to air it just all turns to dust which that was definitely different from the book there was no body that was being taken it was just the image of her singing that aria and in the book it's interesting too because it's you know it's it's 1890 when the book comes out so we're a little bit away i mean moybridge has to be doing his experiments we need that we have some early cinema stuff but the way that they discuss it in the book it sounds like a painting of her was turned against this mirror so it looks like it's really her as opposed to an actual motion picture image which is what i think we're getting more towards with the movie it feels more like motion picture and it feels like he's in his little projection booth when he's got her singing her aria and then he's married up image and sound he's got the little wax cylinder for her voice so i'm surprised that they didn't go even more out there when it came to those inventions yeah i was kind of disappointed reading the book because the inventions in the movie are so crazy and i mean they talk about creating all these you know lights and sounds to scare the villagers away but they don't really say what they're scaring them away from like they don't talk about what Orphonic's working on. So yeah, that it was a little strange, but then you have to kind of remember, okay, 1892, like this was revolutionary for the time, you know, I'm I'm just a spoiled modern person reading this. I know I know what you mean though, yeah, because I think when you get to the uh description of Blestila and how this illusion is being produced, it doesn't really tell us very clearly in the book i think you're just meant to figure out that it's some kind of combination of it's like a some kind of like animated portraiture using like light and projection and it's a little bit vague somehow and i think as you said it's probably a little bit early for cinema but it, it's kind of gesturing in that direction and then i guess in in the movie it is just i mean in part it is just that actual like movie projection which i think gives it and I think this is something that's been said, I think, in the, the Brian Tabez review of the film from from the time that it was released, I think, where he says that there is this, in a way, self-reflexive element to the film where it's almost like implicating itself in that production of illusion. And uh, 
it relates, I guess, to the to the way the film begins because you get the first scene where it's showing you the the I guess it's like the room of of Gort, and then it shows you that TV monitor with the surveillance footage, and then it kind of moves into that, and then the film begins. The film proper, the narrative begins from that. So I guess there is this, yeah, there is this sort of self conscious element where it's somehow implicating itself and i guess we only see what the character sees so when we see the image of lestilla at the window we don't know until the characters know that that's actually a movie so yeah i think that that adds a nice touch of kind of self-consciousness somehow to it and and clearly it doesn't seem like film has been invented yet in the time period of the movie because you know the count he's shocked when the film gets knocked over and it disappears like he has no idea what's happened right and obviously nitrate stock as well since it burns up like nobody's business yeah and that was the thing about Vern is that people still talk about is oh wow he was so visionary and he was always thinking about the future and you know would come up with these ideas in his science fiction that would eventually come true it's very kind of Arthur C. Clarke as well with some of his his uh, forward thinking I mean I think a lot of science fiction authors are always trying to figure out what the future is going to bring. And Vern was very good at it. But yeah, to your point, it's like, he's so close to talking about motion pictures, but it's just a little too early. And I kind of wish that he had gone a little bit farther. Obviously, you know, no offense to Jules Vern, he's doing the best that he can in, in the late 1800s here. So that's great. But yeah, when it comes to mysterious castle being done in 1981 to being done you know almost 90 years later it's like okay um yeah you can go bigger you can definitely go bigger so i I did like that they did go bigger and that they have the tv monitors because i don't think we get the monitoring really i think it's more it's just audio that we get from the pub up to the castle we don't get the visuals as well almost glad that they didn't broadcast the audio from the castle to the pub and create all of that stir that we have like you said they they go away from the village pretty quickly we're just there for just a couple scenes we don't get a lot of village time and we really spend more of our time going to and being at the castle and i love the whole thing of the room that they're in where they have the door that basically has the magic eye that will open the doors and they just (laughs) like a couple of yahoos just jumping back and forth through this door. Like, woohoo, this is great. And I'm like, was I like that when I was a kid? The first time I went to a grocery store and the door opened for me, I probably was. And it kind of helps set up just, you know, they're not used to technology. Like the fact that this is something a child would be excited about, that this is just something completely new. You know, Billy doesn't know what a a WC is, you know, (laughs) And it's an amazing one, isn't it? That that toilet with the kind of weird sort of ornamentation along the seat. Would neon lighting have been invented? Because that's another great moment, isn't it? When when you see that lit up. Well, that sign is beautiful. Sort of doorway. I love that bit. <laughs> and you still want to go through it? Yeah, over the big arch with the two fingers pointing. <laughs> Welcome, Count Teleke. And I love how uh, Gort's is always on him, calling him Count Toloko of Teleke instead of Teleke of Toloko. Teleke. <laughs> Teleke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I was, I was just going to go back to the the issue of, of, of names and of, of food, which I think is something that is kind of constantly there, isn't it? I mean, you have like the salsa verde and there's one great joke that I actually had to look up because I'm not really sort of refined enough to have eaten this. But at one point, you know, when he's displaying, when, when Gortz is displaying the uh, objects that belong to famous composers and then you come to the, the Tornados Rossini, which is this, I think it's like a steak dish with foie gras, isn't it? But there's that kind of constant kind of combination of, I guess it's like high culture, you know, sort of confronted with food or with the body. And again, it's this this constant kind of mockery, isn't it, of the pretentiousness or the sort of high-flown qualities of opera or of high highbrow culture. And again, I guess another variant of that is the scene with the chamber part, which he's singing to as though it's this holy grail. For me, that's all about Badechka, I think, and his... I guess on the one hand, being very sophisticated, you know, very sort of cultivated man, but at the same time, also being aware, I think, of the sort of excesses of pretension that that people could go to. And yeah, there is this sort of constant, I think, mockery like that. I got a kick out of the Baron's quadraphone when you first see him and he has all the gramophones surrounding him. I work in like the kind of audiophile industry. So that's totally how audiophiles are today so i gotta kick out of that <laughs> and i love that orphanic yes he does help out the baron when he can but he's just so much more into his own experiments he really just doesn't care when he's making the apple float and it great he's got an anti-gravity device that he's working on it like it's nothing it's just like and the apple floats up and the baron isn't impressed or anything he's just like what are you doing you know and then eventually the apple falls and splashes and gets all this stuff on the baron's nice white shirt but he's just constantly doing stuff the whole thing where he's putting a plug up of nose (laughs) animal electricity test (laughs) it's so good (laughs) and then he finally uses that to like ruin the phonograph recording of salsa verde just to get his revenge, because once the Baron's done with Orphanic, once he's done with everybody, he just wants to cut all strings and, you know, he blows up all the workers from the castle. He tries to kill Orphanic, but man, the end of this movie where they are, you're just like, is this guy dead now? No, no, he's getting up. He's going to do some more. Well, what about that character? He got stabbed. No, no, he's going to get up. He's going to do some more. It's like, Nobody's really dead at the end of this movie until the walls start tumbling down. I think Orphanic even says, like, I'm definitely dying at one point, and that's he still doesn't die, though. <laughs> Must be the only film with an execution by double bass that I've ever seen, I think. I love that the Baron, too, is obsessed with beards. He's got that whole thing. He loves Tom because Tom's got that great beard. And Tom's beard does that awesome thing where it pulls apart and there's different objects on his chest. There's the one where it's the three guns. There's another where I think it's a portrait of Bastilla or Salsa Verde that he's got there, which it's fascinates. Like a pinup. Villa. Yeah. Right? Okay. <laughs> a pinup with a bare bottom. <laughs> and that he's so mad. The beard is so mad at Orphonic because he's only got the goatee and he's just like, why don't you invent a beard for yourself? <laughs> <laughs> and when it's finally revealed that Toma's beard is fake, like the Baron is so upset. <laughs> and I thought for sure when 
Orphanic had this knife going. I didn't think he was going to stab the Baron. I thought he was going to cut his beard off. And I was just waiting for that to happen. I'm surprised he doesn't make fun of Toloko for having no beard either, because he's a cl- very clean-shaven man. At least Vilya's got the mustache. That scene with um, Orphanic and the, the knife, like that was pretty creepy. You know, <laughs> that's probably the scariest moment of the movie. Yeah, it is a bit of a shock there, but you do see the blood, don't you? I mean, it, I think for this maybe I guess by this point they were a little bit freer in what they could do. But yeah, I was a bit surprised to see that. Yeah, it actually is a real stabbing, and that there's blood, and and then you have that read that you have that that scene of the it's like an animated scene, isn't it? Of the of the the fake arm and the various like implements coming in and out. Of course, I mean, I guess even if we didn't know that this was Schwankmeyer, I think we would guess and. I think this actually was made before Dimensions of Dialogue, but it's almost like a run-up to Dimensions of Dialogue, isn't it? With those kind of like exchanges of objects and mismatches of objects. So it's nice that Schwankmeyer got this opportunity. You almost feel like he's kind of playing around with some of his ideas there. And I guess this is sort of coming the end of the point where Schwankmeyer had been banned from making his own films. And, uh, you know, he would get these projects like this. And of course, he worked on uh, Adela as well. And it's nice that I think Badechka, who I think was in many ways like a sympathetic spirit to to Schwankmeyer, that they gave him this chance to kind of try out some of his kind of crazy conceits and ideas as well. It sounds like, I don't know much about Lipsky, but it sounds like he was very open to collaboration and improv. So yeah, he was just happy to have people bring their energy and do what they want to do. So I think Berdechka and Schwankmeyer were friends. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Because I, I think that there's an animated film by Berdechka, I've forgotten the name now, which is based on the, or I think where he used the artwork of Ava Schwankmeyer over the wife of Schwankmeyer. And, there was uh, a Miller on the River. That's right, yeah. So yeah, there was a, an admiration by Berdechka for surrealism. One of the interviews with Berdechka, he talks about his affinity with surrealism. And I think specifically, he talks about Valeria and A Week of Wonders and about how, I guess, something that connects surrealism with him was this love for popular culture or for sort of pulp literature. And it's all about finding the, I guess it's the sort of, I think he calls it the unknown humor or the unconscious humor and also the sort of unconscious elements of poetry in popular culture and if you think of something like the you know the the love of the nick carter stories in adela i guess you have that same fascination really with with i guess like what we would call low culture or or pulp and it's all about finding the strangeness in that and i mean for me i think there's a really fascinating trajectory i think from lemonade joe to adela to this film where i think in lemonade joe you're seeing much more of a parody and i think that film I think because of the time that it was made, had to be framed much more as a parody of the genre that it was working with. But I think by the time you get to this point, I think the time was a little bit freer. So I think they were a little bit less constrained to make everything a parody of genre conventions. I think they were a bit freer to just make a real gothic film. So I feel that somehow you see more of the love for the actual genre material in this movie than you do say in something like Lemonade Joe even though I I mean I love Lemonade Joe too and I mean that I I think was also popular because people just loved westerns and of course Bodechka was probably the biggest fan of westerns in 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 Czechoslovakia but I think 
somehow the genre is allowed to breathe a bit more in this film. And then this film kind of came about because it was just a fluke that Berendov had just some space and they're just, hey, go make a movie really quick. So I wonder if, you know, maybe they're a bit more hands off because they just they just need something to be done fast. Yeah, I was I was really surprised to read that. Yeah, I think it had been a project that had been knocking around, I think, since the 60s and had just been shelved at some point. And I don't think Lipsky or Bedechka, definitely Bedechka, I think, was not attached to it at first. And uh, I think it was one of those projects that came about uh, because of the Italian involvement in Czechoslovakia in the 60s. I think it was Maurice Ergas who, I think, initiated the idea of doing an adaptation of it. But I, I don't know if it was meant to be a comedy originally. And then I think, as you say, by the late 70s, I think there was just this point where they had studio facilities free. And I think it was just pretty much uh, just because they had that opportunity to do it. And then I think Bedechka got on board. And yeah, it seemed to have come together pretty quickly. And just, yeah, Lipsky was attached first. And I mean, he only makes comedies. So it's like the second you add Lipsky, like it's going to be a comedy. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to push this in the comedy realm. I mean, they definitely play up a lot of things but this idea of these two men who are obsessed with this dead opera singer and that the opera singer just doesn't exist that it's just a a a birdsat's version of her it's a projection of her and that the one guy just doesn't understand that for the longest time in the book he is constantly like where is she i gotta gotta go to the dungeon i gotta find her i gotta Salsa Verde is, is here someplace. I need to find her. And in the movie, it's, yeah, he kind of does that, but he's not nearly as obsessed. He seems to be, I don't know, he sees the body, sees her there. And I think that that sates him for a while. But then when he finally hears her singing and rushes in and destroys the mirror accidentally, there is inherent comedy to this, I think. But I found while I was listening to the book because I listened to it, I didn't read it, but I found the it felt very much like it was doing that whole thing that um a lot of authors were doing at the time, the whole idea of serialization, because it felt very serialized as far as each chapter would take us to a point where it left us wanting more. And I really appreciated the way that he did that. Again, I don't think this is the strongest Vern book out there, but I liked how he was setting up each chapter. And even when it came to the return of Nick from the castle that we start off with his fiance and we get to hear more about her. And then eventually his story rejoins her and we get to hear a little bit of what happened. So as a reader, I was like, or a listener in this case, I was really intrigued as far as like, how are they going to get back to this and tell me more about this story? Because we end one chapter with him, with the Velia character, the Forester, trying to, he, he tries to climb up this chain to get around the drawbridge. And next thing you know, he's passing out. And then we don't know what happened to him until the end, near the end of the next chapter. So I thought that was a nice way that he doled out information. And I was really paying attention to how we get information passed along to us in this version of it. Just again with, you know, when we meet Vilia, when we meet Taleke, when we meet Orphanic and the Baron. I mean, like I said, it does take a long time for us to actually see the Baron's face. But then once he's there, he is big presence. 
And in the book, Bastila, like she never actually sees him. She just feels this presence. So it's kind of funny that the movie does this 180 where, you know, Milos Kopetsky is just in your face and with all those great faces that he makes. When she says, I never want to see your face again. He's like, okay. And then the next thing he sees, he's all bandaged up. <laughs> and the way he's in the audience, just like bandaged completely from head to toe and trying to clap and everything. I'm just like, yeah, this is great physical comedy. I love it. And in the book, it's like she she likes the Count, but it seems like her motivation to marry him is more she just wants an excuse to retire, to get away from the Baron. But in the movie, they're more just they're in love. They're kind of equal partners. And then she tells the, the Count about the Baron and the Count says, hey, let's get married. It's It's kind of a more equal relationship in the movie, even though she is a very small, minimal part of the movie. And her death is so strange where I'm like, did he, did the Baron steal her soul by capturing it? Like I, I kept thinking that he had a motion picture camera because I wasn't aware of what was going to happen. So I kept thinking that he had a camera in the audience and that he was capturing her and the night of her final performance, she does this big aria. And at the end she passes away and i was like well did he steal her soul with this equipment or something but no it just seems like this odd coincidence that she happened to have a like an aneurysm that final night and i at least in the movie it feels like she was scared to death or something but i'm not exactly sure what happens why she has to die at that moment well the, you know but she faints when uh Telica gets the telegram to go to her and she faints and then it's you know, they say, oh, she has a heart condition. So I think the Baron is just playing on, like he knows she has a heart condition and he knows he can make her at least pass. I don't think he intended to kill her, but he knew he could at least have her pass out and he could kidnap her. But yeah, in the book, it's it's not as clear, I think, what happens. And then in the film, he delivers the the ultimate shot, which is the the sort of party blower bang, isn't it? It's just really ridiculous. and Right in our faces. Should have been a 3D film. Jonathan, didn't we just see a bust of Beethoven in Murder Check Style? Good question. That sound right. I yeah, I can't remember offhand, but it would make sense. Yes, I think in the in his in the protagonist's apartment there is a bust of something. Okay, because when I when they use the bust of Beethoven to to break down the door, this feels very familiar. And it's okay, of course, because Beethoven only wrote one opera, so and I just watched uh, Four Murders Are Enough, Darling, and I think there was something with a, a bust of some prominent person in that, too. <laughs> I think that maybe that's where I'm getting it from. That's that's probably where it's at. Because I knew sometime this month I had seen a bust of Beethoven other than being used as a battering ram. And just the way it gets progressively more squashed, doesn't it, each time? It's really, again, total disrespect for high culture. <laughs> When I love when uh, Orphanic is finally dying and he gives all of, all of his inventions over and he's just like, make sure that these go to a safe place. And then you get to see that odd animation at the very end with all of the rats eating his, his book. It's so bad. You forget that the movie ends with the, with the Count murdering himself because he shakes apart the opera house that he's in. It's a dark ending, isn't it? I think I think the fact that it, yeah that it's animated and the tone is still so jolly kind of belies the fact that yeah it, it's 
pretty nihilistic, isn't it? Because again, and that's the ultimate commentary, I guess, isn't it, on both opera, the high culture and the technology or the the, the sort of idea of scientific progress because both are put paid to pretty quickly and the tone of the movie is, yeah, this is the best thing. We we you know, we didn't really need those inventions. They could only have done harm, so just better let the mice eat them. Yeah, it's it's a very funny movie, but it's very you know, just man takes a woman's body and keeps it preserved in this room and you know, it's it's very dark. <laughs> Especially when you see the corpse after it's disintegrated and you just get the teeth and the hair and then that machine that was making it look like she was breathing. Oh, that's really pretty gruesome. Yeah, I really admire that they went there because, uh, yeah, that could have just been done in a very silly way and just in this very pathetic way. But yeah, there is something creepy, isn't there, in that, I think. Especially, the, yeah, the, as you say, the teeth, the sort of like the sense of this body that should be reduced to sort of like mechanical like automata it's a very uh yeah there is something pretty gothic about that and yeah i mean that's that's not in the book at all i don't think i don't think there's anything yeah there's nothing comparable to that really so yeah i do admire that they kind of like actually did something that was a little bit more serious there and the way the baron talks about her you know he says so oh, she's only good to polish silver with now and this, it doesn't matter that her body disintegrated. I own her soul. You know, I own her her voice and her image. Towards the end of the book is he's still, they destroy the image, but yeah, he's got the voice and he's got that basically the wax cylinder type of thing with her voice on it. And that's when the Brodsky character shows up again and shoots that out of his hand, destroying it. And that's when he's just like, I give up completely because now I don't have anything from her and I'm just going to pull these castle walls down on myself. A little bit different here in this version, but pretty similar, I would say. I mean, he does get the voice destroyed by Orphonic and then he eventually does get the castle walls down on himself, but don't think it's necessarily his choice in this one. In this one, yeah, he... He has the detonation device and he, I think. That's uh, right. The wireless yeah. detonator. So yeah. yeah, it's like, okay, I have nothing left. So may as well. <laughs> and I do love the final shot of the entire film where Vilya is now married to the mayor's daughter, but he's still dreaming of Salsa Verde and he's basically got her in his arms. And then all of the characters are back. It's very much you know, the, the curtain call for the film, like literally a curtain call for the film because they're all on this proscenium and you can see all of the characters back one last time before the curtain closes. And it's just totally mismatched, isn't it? I, I can't remember. Yeah, because you see, I think Vilia is with La Stila and then, or Salsa Verde and Alphanic is just kind of like lying across the stage, isn't it? <laughs> and it's just, yeah, the most mismatched combination of couples you could imagine, I think. And then the curtain closes and it begins and ends, doesn't it, with the curtain call, which is a nice touch, I think, because again, it's that sense of self-consciousness, I think. Let's go ahead and take a break and play an interview with author Teresa Borodechkova and film programmer Irina Kavarova right after these brief messages. Get ready for the ultimate adrenaline rush in Meg 2, The Trench, as action star Jason Statham reprises his role as rescue diver, naval captain Jonas Taylor and joins Chinese star Wei Jing in Ben Wheatley's sequel to the hit film, The Meg. Set four years after the events of the original film, 
Statham leads a daring research team in a battle of survival against multiple massive Megs. Look for Meg 2, the trench on digital. Step into the gallery, dear friends, for horrors, nightmares, and spooky tales. This is the Midnight Viewing Podcast, and we like to discuss the frightening world of television horror anthologies. From Rod Serling's Night Gallery, to Tales from the Dark Side, to Hammer House of Horror and more. Father Malone, Chris Stashew, and Mike White will be your docents during this midnight viewing. Available wherever you download your podcasts from weirdingwaymedia.com. My name is Teresa Prdečkova. My name is Irena Kovaro. I don't even know where to begin. I guess if we can start with your dad and talk a little bit about him and, and his career and how he even became a filmmaker because he was a writer, director, animator, so many different things. Can you talk a little bit about him? He was this generation being born still in old Austro-Hungarian Empire in 1917. That means that this was a generation of filmmakers with no film schools, of course. Now the question is where all these people have learned to all this from. We all are now learning more within film schools and mostly from other films, from films being already made. And uh, definitely in the case of my father and his friends, those were first of all American films, good Hollywood films from the 30s and the early 40s. Of course, comedies by Lubitsch or Capra or whatever. Then he was very touched by this, what is called Western epics. That means not only like Westerns, simple Westerns, but Westerns that in the same time are saying something really about the big country of America because he was living in a tiny, almost claustrophobic society. And especially during World War II, this was a big push and a big help. Yeah. Now, you were born in the late 50s, and I'm so curious, how did you discover that your father was a filmmaker, that he wasn't just the guy who gets up in the morning, goes to a factory, and comes back at 5 o'clock? Indeed, he was really going to the factory because he was employed in animated studios, Brothers in Tree, and he was going practically every morning there, but it was not very far. It was something like 10 minutes by walk. But the other thing was that this, uh, I would say, film-loving or films being filmed fun, this was a part of the life because I think we didn't have any television, but I think I was the first time in a movies when I was something like three years old. And it was something like a duty. It was not only that I could go to the cinema, I was obliged to go to the cinema. So when he couldn't go with me, he was sending my mother or the answers, whatever. So I was from the very early age, a movie cover. And I realized one more thing because I'm a screenwriter and I'm, I'm a professor of screenwriting at a, a practical school. You meet very many people who are in fact not able to read screenplays because this is another way of reading. And in my case, or in the case of people like me, I was aware of the screenplays as soon as with the books, because screenplays were everywhere around me. So 
in the moment when I started reading, when I was seven years old, I was reading books, but also screenplays. And I think it's developing also something like film eye, yes, that you are not thinking in terms of literature in the words, but you start to think in, in the pictures, in images. It was ever that he was filmmaker since the very beginning. He was more filmmaker than anything else, in fact. Were you pretty much always fated to become a screenwriter, script doctor? You've done so many things as well. Did you always just feel this is the natural path for you? It was natural path, but oh, I was living in a time when it was not really possible because when I was 12 years old, this was a Soviet occupation, Russian occupation, Czechoslovakia, and this this amazing world of Czechoslovak cinema somehow ended from one day to another. And I finished my high school in 1976 or seven. And I wanted to go to the film school, but I didn't want to go to study screenwriting because this was really horrible. We had a kind of studio system in communist Czechoslovakia and the people were in these times teaching and would teach in a film faculty. Those were really monstrous, couldn't teach you anything. And my father was still living and I asked him questions and he was answering. I was thinking they didn't, they wouldn't take me or do the screenwriting anyway because my father was not in the communist party and everything, which was important. And so I started film editing and it was a very good decision. If I don't mention the fact that I destroyed a couple of very good editors being their assistant because I'm not a very organized person, but this is something like a profession. We say that everything that is wrong in the film since the first idea was born is in the end present in the editing room. You know? So you are facing all the problems the film project met since the first idea. So you really learn a lot about the film language there. So I was grateful that I could study that, but I didn't realize that the bad thing was that I was one classified as a film editor. And Besides, it was quite difficult to become a real film editor in that time. And I couldn't write screenplay. So I was starting as a film critic in the very beginning. I was writing in the film magazines and like only newspapers. And of course, things changed a lot for us after change in, in, in Eastern Europe. And then when Vastanova became a president, the world was open for my generation. But in the same time, the world was open, but the, 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 the film industry collapsed totally in this moment in, in the post-communist countries because the, the studio system were, in fact, funded by state. It was more complicated, but more or less, those were the, 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 the state enterprises. And suddenly there were no clients and no business and everything. So everything changed. So in fact, I was waiting another maybe 12 years doing different things that I don't regret. And I think it was also good because you are becoming mature. This is quite a horrible Buddhist profession where, of course, you write 10 screenplays, maybe one that is produced, and this is never this what you would imagine. So what is the value of the screenwriting is that uh, you like the project in the moment when we are working on it. And I think my father was very much aware of it. I learned this from him 
that this is not the very often this is not the result because it's very uncertain but this is the creative work itself on a project how did the Prague Spring affect your dad and his fellow filmmakers he was one generation elder than the filmmakers of the new wave let's say and a good thing for him that he was never really a part of this communist system but the this was a very special group of the artists who were functioning, in fact, as a kind of vitrine of communism. This was, for example, puppet, the, the puppet animator Viri Trinka or some others. Those were people who were mostly doing films that were unpolitical, much closer to the Western culture. They could travel because they could speak languages, which was not obvious because the Western languages in these countries were forbidden since the beginning of the 50s. I think my father had a kind of reputation since the um, 50s already or the late 40s because he was first the screenwriter of Yuri Trinka. And the second, he was a screenwriter of another actor and also Jan Veri, who was in fact something like an astral twin of Orson Welles, if you know, this kind of the very general artist. And they, they wrote together a, a very beautiful comedy about Emperor Rudolf II, which was very funny. It was a huge success. So from this moment, Izzy Brechka was classified as someone who is not bringing troubles, but success. And this was good for everyone. For example, he was working with Wojciech Jasny on his very beautiful film, One Day, One Cat, or When Cat Comes. It has, I think, Irena knows different titles. It's called Cassandra Cat. I think it was never released, in fact, in the United States in the end, was it? I'm not sure if it was, but it's definitely now out on a beautiful Blu-ray. He had a humor, he had a poetry, he was oriented very well in the contemporary Western film from Western Europe and from United States. And he was one of the admirers of, let's say, America legend. Yeah. He was never in the United States. In fact, he was supposed to go there twice, but he never came out from the different reasons. But he saw so many films that he had his special vision of the United States, I must say, without having any illusions, because we had an access, as a, very few people had it, to the American press and to the American film press, like American film or Take One or also different uh, American magazines. And that's how I learned English, for example. And so in this mood, he made this film called Limonade Joe, with Oldrich Lipsky, which is in the same time parody and chant of admiration towards, towards American legend. Yes. Because you must realize that people who were working on Lemonade Joe, those were very often people who never saw Western films in their lives. You know? So they had this love they had from the pictures, from the telling of the others. And I still have a collection of, of the pictures from a classical American Western, very good ones. And if you see them, you can follow to which point, for example, the composition, photographical composition of Limonade Joe is taken or if you look, is stolen from these classical American films made by John Ford or the others. This is very interesting. 
So uh, his view on, uh, on America and its culture was very, I would say, ambivalent. He was a big admirer of this legend of the big culture, let's say. This is because big culture means, means freedom, you know. You, you take your horse and you ride and you have a lot of space. We have no space here. We have a tiny country. And plus this was a communist country. So people were really close, like in, in a shoebox. And, and the other thing was that the, he was from time to time very skeptical towards official American politicians and so on, which was not always the case of the people who were Americans in Czechoslovakia. For example, he was someone, when he, would he live in the United States, he would certainly vote for Democrats and this kind of personality. And then after, this was your question, after 1968, because he was not in communist culture this was good for him because he couldn't be kicked off the communist party so he still could stay in the studios in Barandov. in these times people are employed as a screenwriters or directors and they were earning something like a basic salary which was a very low and only after shooting only after being employed making a film they were paid better that means that he was something like out of business for the moment. The last film he was working on really well were Prague Nights that Death Crocodile really is last, last month. But in the same time, he was still writing and he wrote a couple of screenplays that were never released and realized. And then, because he was very much friend with the director Olzy Lipsky, who, by the way, has a hundred years anniversary, a hundred years from his birth next year. And uh, Lipsky was still part of the system. They were thinking that they would like to, to do something else together after Limonade Joe. And I think that the reason why it was possible was the fact that after the six years of of the transformation, of the very negative transformation of Czechoslovak culture, the cinemas were empty and the film industry was losing a lot of money. And in the end, it was more or less clear that uh, Andalipsky was, was a member of the party, was a, a kind of uh, guarantee that politically it was okay. It was like that. So it was possible to make the film, which was called Adela didn't have her dinner yet. And this was another dream of Yeti Brechka because he was always very much in love in the uh, in the Nick Carter crime stories. I remember that we had a book of Nick Carter crime stories since I was really a very small child, around four years. It was very bizarre because it was a very beautifully made book made from these pulp fictions, this pulp. And he started to write. And what is important to know that in this time, James Bond, which was already very much present on the international scene, was not well accepted in the communist countries because he was taken as a kind of, as a kind of personalization of the capitalism of its brutality and everything. And, uh, it's, if they wouldn't see the comic part of this figure. And, uh, my friend didn't like the James Bond also because it was a little bit aggressive and brutal and, if you live in a country like that, 
you are sensitive on this, but in the same time, he was fascinated by a certain involuntary magic and humor of this Nick Carter stories. I found when I was writing his biography that in that time there were already two films about James Bond being made, but they were a little bit forgotten and certainly didn't know that. And so he invented the very complicated story about the plan that eats humans and about an American genius detective who is convoked to come to the Austro-Hungarian Empire to Prague to solve the problem. And uh, this is a very funny film because this is the same principle like Limonade Joe that in the same time there is something like a slight admiration or admiration for America and its people and its humor and everything. And in the same time, this knowing that the people from the West, especially from America, knew absolutely nothing about Eastern Europe, that they had a very strange picture defigurated by the propaganda, which was, by the way, the case on the both sides. And they made this film, and it was the same case, like in the case of Limonade Joe, that means that, first of all, everyone who was working on this film was absolutely enthusiastic. So the people were doing much more than they were asked to, actors or the authors of the costumes and to animate Jan Schwankmeier, who was in charge to animate this plan, this Adela. So in the end, this film was something like a very unique in the middle of 70s, which were in fact a very dark part of the Czechoslovak history. So this was this Adela. And afterwards, this was a time of, uh, I don't know, big political troubles. This is a time of Charter 77 or, or a time where people were pushed uh, to be engaged uh, officially against Charter 77. And I have forgotten to say one thing that can be interesting that I think it was in 1973, George Hill was shooting in Prague, Slaughterhouse Number no. 5, and the photographer, the OP of the film was Miroslav Olrice, who was a Czech photographer who was normally the OP of Osmiloš Forman. And my father had a big dream of his life to make a film, very serious film about Wild Bill Hickok. Because Jiří Brečka was a really big fan of the Wild West stories. He wrote an amazing book about this, but he was not in this case interested in legend. He was, really, he was interested in the true life of these people. And he was interested, his question was where the legend, where this romanticism was born, because he had a lot of books and he was thinking about it and exactly this frontier life in the 70s or 60s of the 19th century was something extremely rude. So who were really those people who were becoming heroes of the folk songs and uh, of the films and everything. So uh, he had this uh, a synopsis about Wild Bill Hickok, and he asked through Miroslav Ondřiček to meet George Roy Hill, and he was very kind and invited him to come. But in this very day, my father was kicked off the, his job in Barando, so he didn't come because in the end, <laughs> he was very much afraid. This was not fun in that time. I must say that I, I saw a film about Wild Bill Hickok, which was made, I think, in the 90s. And this was kind of very same story. So I don't know how it was. 
in the end, they, this was the only one story of his life. So I think it's normal. So this was one of these missed opportunities. Yeah. And so after being made is Adela, didn't make her dinner yet. They wanted to make, because it was a very huge success also for international sales. So they wanted to shoot a sequel. But uh, it wasn't possible. They had a synopsis of the film, which was called Nikarta in Istanbul. They they wanted to co-produce with Turkey in the end. It was not possible. And the time was going on and my father was very, very ill. He got a heart attack and he, he had uh, big problems. And in that time, there were no bypasses or possible to cure the disease. Died. So this was very difficult for him. And in the end, Lipsky came in 1979 or 78. And he said, listen, What's going on? I know that there is something like a pre-slot in the plans of Brandos. Pre-slot means following. This was a planified economy. That means the, the regime decided that the next year they were produced, I don't know, 200,000 of shoes or 40 films or 50 films. And then they were selling the plan. The problem was, of course, that some sometimes people needed 500,000 shoes or 100,000 shoes. And in this case, that, that's why it didn't function. But basically, in the cinema, if I if there wouldn't be the ideology, I think it was, it was functioning quite well. It was very professional. And what happened this year was that the one film that was planified for some reasons that I don't know, somehow fell out of this program and Lipsky said we can they can let you they can let us in but we must come very quickly with something my father said oh my god what do you want from me I don't know it's just a full and movie and everything and Lipsky said listen I had a book that I loved all my childhood and this is Mr. Castle in Carpathian by Jules Verne should I tell them yes and my father said of course tell them yes and uh, so this was the beginning and it was a very quick action that had to be. And then Yuzi Brechka read the, the novel. And in this moment, I was already quite major. I was 25 years old. And he was talking with me about it. And he said, this is a very complicated because I think that this, this is one of the very weak Jules Verne's novel that cannot be really adapted for the movies. I must say that he was already involved in Jules Verne's novels before because he was uh, co-writing two films, which was Baron Munchausen and before very famous film, The Invention of the Disaster by, by Rosemann. So he knew very well the author and it was the author of his childhood too, eventually. But suddenly, and I discovered it later also with, with several books, they are books that they are seducing you to be adapted because it's visual, it has a story, they are funny characters or interesting characters. But in the moment when you start to change it from book into screenplay, you realize that it has absolutely no logic. And when you start to do it, it loses all its charm. So now what to do? Because he was very in a very bad physical estate and it was very much in a hurry. So he started to write, he didn't know what to do. And because he didn't want to do, he started 
to invent a very special dialect. He only knew that they will transfer it from, it was already in Carpathian, but they will transfer it in an existing bizarre landscape that theoretically is somewhere between Romania and Slovakia. We don't know exactly. And Jiří Brečka started to invent a special Slavic dialect. He took all the dictionaries of the possible dialect from of the Czech language. This is a small language difficulty. But still when people have, they left mostly to this, what the people in the film are saying. So I hope that the translation is of the film is uh, at least a little bit funny because for us it was always a big fun. And he started, he didn't know what to write, but he started to, to speak with this new language, with this new speak that he invented. And he was more and more unhappy. And so they finally they put it together. They hired actors and everything. It was not that cheap. It was in fact quite an expensive show. And they started to shoot without uh, really achieve the screenplay to the point that was normal in that time. Because in that time it was really, everything had to be really on the top and everything had to be also by the Committee of Communist Party and I think they skipped this because I remember my father was still going to the set with the little parts of screenplay that they were missing. Yeah, He was always present on the set. He was there officially as a costume advisor because he was specialist on the everything like realities of you know, the end of 19th century. But in fact he was bringing the small paper he was always writing by hand and they were finishing everything directly on the set. And the point is that when they finished the film, which was, of course, very much waited, very much awaited by the audience, and every said, oh, this is not a good film. And my father was absolutely sure it was a very bad film. And he said, but what could I do? This was the only thing we could do in this very moment. And by the way, he was really in a horrible estate and he died one, one year after 1982. And this won't happen. I didn't think about it because I had my life and I only returned to the, my father's work when I was around 55, something 30 years later. And I wrote and published his biography because I realized that there is no one else to do it. No one was left. And in this moment, I was invited to the small film festival here in Czech Republic to introduce this film, Mysterious Castle in Carpathian. It was for me something totally forgotten. And I was thinking, okay, I go there, but it's 30, 30 degrees Celsius in the afternoon. Everyone will be on the, everyone will be go to the bus or whatever to the, to, to the pub or to this forest. Then I came into, it was in a gym. They were young people everywhere. It was full. They were sitting on the floor. They were standing. They were applauding. I was thinking, my, that was going on. And they told me that in fact, this is the film of their childhood because me in the meantime, the culture of videotapes was born, of the VHA steps of the their parents, their parents or recorded them for the television or that they, they bought it. And those were children. This is also the generation of my children who are watching this film again and again. And today you have children here who know this by heart. I know a film director who has a child and a three years old. He knew <laughs> Mysterious House, Caspian Carpathian by heart. Uh, Whatever next that, for example, I and I working as a script actor with one very fine film director like animator. 
which was a story taking place in the 16th century in the forest here in Bohemia. And I said, but what are you doing? You have here directly characters from the mystery house of Carpathian. He said, oh, you are completely right. I absolutely didn't, didn't notice that because it was so much in me. I saw it 100 times when I was a child and I was very much afraid. I said, you were afraid this is a comedy. Oh, for me, it was not comedy. It was really horrible. And I was only laughing after. So this is a story of mysterious life in Carpathian. Can you tell me what was Aldrich Lipsky like? I have a project eventually to do something about these three comedies next year when the, because first time Lipsky will have this 100 years and second time someone told me it's right that it's, it's how much is the six years of the opening of the Lemonade Joe here in Czech Republic. So we would like to do something like a small exhibition and everything. Aldrich Lipsky was uh, uh, beginning as theatrical director originally he was not from Prague he was from the country and I think they they had a kind of amateur theater in a small town in, in Bohemia but he was also very much in for the Westerns. for some reasons these guys they could see a lot of Westerns during World War II even when America was already in war Germans were confiscating the copies of the American films, but these copies, they were somewhere. They were guardians and the young people were giving money or the cigarettes to this guardian to, to show them, to, to, to project them these films. And I think also this motivation of doing something forbidden, because it was not like going to the movies, you were doing something dangerous. So this was a part of a magic. And... After after the war, Lipsky was a persuaded communist, I must say, but he, he never did anything wrong to anyone, anyone, as far as I know. He was a very good guy. And he was director of the theatrical version of Lemonade Joe in Prague in the mid-50s. And I remember I just had in my hands a letter of someone of these times who said, but this guy, he is really... He has the qualities of Ilya Kazan. What he is doing on stage with this, like Western thing, this is unbelievable. And then he started to do also films. First, those were really a regime films, but later on, he started to do also other films. And I know that he was extremely attracted by Hollywood and his real life dream was to make at least one film in the United States. Thing that he never, that he could never do, but I think he was quite close to that. And outside of this Lemonade Joe, he made, in my opinion, three great comedies in the beginning of 70s, which were the combination of the science fiction and comedies in, a, in, in this Czechoslovak version. Quite funny. And I think it could be quite interesting for the today's audience for the same reasons. Like this mysterious castles, a pet and everything, because this is a kind of humor that is in the same time. I don't know. Uh, I, sometimes I feel that I land because it's so stupid. It's you could never really invent something so idiotic. So in the end, it has this quality. If I compare it to the Terry Gilliam poetic, for example, Monty Python flying circus in generous, you go always. Too far, more far than the normal author of comedy, also, though, would go and it functions and then people laugh. 
He was very good partner for Jerzy Brdečka because he was a genius partner for the screenwriter because he was always saying, I want to make exactly the screen a screenplay by Jerzy Brdečka. I don't want to do anything I invent. It's good like it is. And I want to have it always at my side to, to tell me what to do. So what the screenwriter can wish more. They were really very much friends more and more. There are a lot of comedies or a couple of comedies they were, they, that were funny here, but I don't think that they can have an international impact. But some of these, really, it's, I see it only today when I realize on which professional level this studio was. Really a word left because it's, it was not like that later on in the 90s and whatever. Now it's quite okay also, but the, these films... I don't know. So I don't speak the language. And so I don't want to be obtuse when I ask you for more details about the language being used in Mysterious Castle, just because I see Salsa Verde and I laugh. I see Contracanto and I laugh, but I don't understand all of the complexities of the Czech language that you were talking about. Can you dumb it down for me? Yeah, I think also don't know all the accent, all the American accent, but very typically is accent in Texas, yes. It's if someone would speak like someone from Texas playing Macbeth or whatever. Yeah, this is something like appropriate. Irena, it's like that, no? We'll do something to comment this. The way that the language works for Czechs that is in the film, is it's not only that it's, it's fun because it's, it is a dialect, but it's fun because it's invented dialect. So it's pushing... Something not only by the pronunciation, but also the words that used. And then they combine, they insert these words that are, for instance, for the Count Telke, they, he uses this flower language or use, he's in love of using these foreign words within his like very noble language. And then to the contrast, the, the, the villagers speak this really broad, dialect and vulgar words that of course for kids are just hilarious and for the work of subtitles that we just finished with one of the best interpreters or translators from the Czech Alex Zucker it is really hard to really be honest or trying to use to interpret this the language and at the same time, make it easy as a subtitle. Of course, there is lots of stuff lost in translation, or we couldn't push it the same way as you would on a page, because once you have it on a, on a page, you could get used to certain ways of, of expression that doesn't work for subtitles. So it is, we had to dial it a little down, but if there is, we try to preserve all the jokes, of course, and then try to to give you a feel of, of the language, but it is, it's, and also there's, there's this, the third kind of language and, and it is this made up Romanian, pidgin Romanian language. Sometimes you see it in the signs in the film. We completely avoided that because that was just way too much. And so in as much as for the Czechs, that those things are untranslatable, you only, there are certain Roman like Latin words that that you understand because 
other languages. And as much as Czechs would understand that, Americans or whoever else would understand it. So we left it without translation. And as in Czech, it was not translated except for translating some posters or some, something that was translated, should be translated in English. But yeah, that was a very tough job that, that, that Vrečka sort of prepared for us. And yes, frankly, it's impossible to, to convey the, how Czech can cherish this, the language of the villagers. But there is plenty of physical humor, as many gags and when you work on, on, on a film, when you edit subtitles and you have to watch it again and again, I must say there are few spots where I always laugh and it, it will translate in as from the visual cues. It feels a lot like I'm missing a lot when it comes to Vlastimil Brodsky and the way that he interacts with the main character and just, it feels like he's barely tolerating the opera singer main character. He's. He's been a fatherly figure to him. He's taking care of him. At the same time, he's trying to advise him. Our Jonathan Owen, who wrote the essay that comes with, with the release, called him the man Friday to, to the Count. It is, he is like taking back a little from the Count, just like, calm down or do this or do that. And, the count and his attitude he he's he's always overriding whatever ignat says and so we tried actually we we did have there was one other issue with names like we we kept them in the check because translating names it just becomes uh, difficult but if you imagine like you would call him maybe count would call him ignatius help just that's what i think yes i think that there is one point that could be interesting this is these three comedies are built on the cliché, of the cliché being, uh, I don't know, elaborated by people who were fully aware of the fact that they are closed in the sort of bubble. They couldn't travel. They didn't have any contact with the other cultures. So this cliché was the only one left. But in the same time, it allows you to have fun of yourself, to have fun of this cliché because you are aware of it. You know what I mean. And this is, it seems to me to be very interesting and I think this is the reason why it's so difficult to write comedies today because we know too many things. Yeah, very often comedies is based on the fact that the characters are a little bit, they are out of a different reason, ignoring what's, what's going on. And I remember from these times, and maybe this was a sort of inspiration for both of these films, I had at home, or we had at home, one print of Newsweek. And there was a big picture of the woman in the Slovak national costumes who was selling painted eggs in the street of Prague which was a very typical moment before Easter. This is a kind of souvenir. And so this was a market, yes. And this picture was sold in the new sweep magazine, which was a very intelligent thing. Like something like a common thing. That's how, that's how the, the street of the Prague are looking. 
which was really fantastic. And I was always very angry when I saw that. And in the same time, I realized more and more that this is exactly how the Westerners want to see the Eastern countries. So if you watch the, if you watch the Mr. Castle and Carpathian, this is how the Westerners want to see the Eastern countries. This is the East, finally. This is the east of the Belle Epoque and everything. And I think this was a little bit of a point. Because suddenly when he found this as a screenwriter, this is a novel being written by Gilles Verge, this slightly disregarding view on the part of the culture, you get it because it's really funny. Because you, that, that is how Teleka is seeing the villages. And he's always very clever and he's most clever of all at the same time as we know. He's very stupid. And that's it. There are some things that you discover only when you work on subtitles because you really need to be precise about many things. And so there were things that even I learned through our translator because we just wanted to convey everything truly. And so, for instance... Opera, I forgot exactly what it's called, a vampire, something rather. It is a direct reference to the, the things that Americans would understand, the connections with Dracula, which not necessarily every person who doesn't follow these kind of, this kind of genre, they would understand. But there are really funny things in the language. There is this, the, for instance, the, the water, the mineral water, Kisibelka, which to me, it sounded like an invented word, Kisibelka. This actually comes from German, and, and it's supposed, it was a marketed name of a German mineral water that was then popular probably in, in the early 20th century in, in, in the Czech lands, and people would actually know it. But to a modern person, it sounds very made up. And things like that, they're just really hidden in it, and that, that you really... Found out, find out only after you really study it closely. So what was your guys' involvement with this new release from Deaf Crocodile? I am the founder and owner of Kambe Company, and Deaf Crocodile actually approached me to partner on releases of films from former Czechoslovakia. And so The Mysterious Castle in the Carpathian is the third film that we worked on together. And so I mostly help out with acquisition or finding out whom we can approach for acquisition and advise on titles that I could release, and then working mostly on extras and finding people like Teresa or making sure that people like Teresa or people who are knowledgeable can participate on, on, on the extras and finding extras like the fantastic extra that is on the Mysterious Castle, which is the film that, that is, I believe co-produced. It's called Universal which I strongly recommend. And on another release, for instance, for the Pied Piper, I, I approached Peter Hames, whom you probably know from the work he's done on Czechoslovak New Wave, promoting writing. And so this is my role, making sure that the film is presented in with, with the best information available and put in context for Americans. And that we present the film or the, the information about the film that is not readily available. Have you noticed an uptick in interest in Czech films over the last few years? There is 
I believe a high interest in films that are more genre and that 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 are were outside of the Czechoslovak new wave realm. New wave, the Czechoslovak new wave films were always very popular and very available, and it helped other Czech films to to the fore because it's really hard to present films from a small country in America or in such a wide market. And so having the Czechoslovak new wave wins behind your back helped even the younger generations to present their films, especially after 1989. At the same time, it's a curse because everybody's interested in those Czechoslovak new wave and, and compare everything with that. And so I believe that there is just much more now work done on 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 showing sort of the other films that were produced even in the 60s like Brock Nice for instance that was the first release of Left Crocodile in this realm and films that not even Czechs might know I actually didn't know Brock Nice before Dennis Bartok brought it up to my attention and yeah there were releases of Otakar films etc etc it's just much wider and because of the technologies and what they allow now, even for, for boutique distributors to, to make a really great job on, on putting films out, there's just so much more available. And so I think that it's just much, much wider interest and also showing the genre, the wealth of the genre films. And for genre, when we speak with Czech, about Czech films, I would really think it's, it's comedy that the Czechs are the strongest. I totally agree. If you had a magic wand and could release any particular film to a wide audience that you think really needs to see it, what would it be? I So the period that we call normalization was this time after six, after invasion of the Soviet armies or the so- Soviet bloc armies into Czechoslovakia. And then comedies, because they were on a page or not political, they flourished and they also brought the audiences in. And so this is the golden time of comedies. Teresa already spoke about the films by Oldrich Lipsky. And I would add to that Oldrich Lipsky had a really great nose for screenwriters. He, the screenwriters for comedies that he worked with are the best of, of screenwriters in that realm. And one of those, one of the screenwriters was Zdenek Svirak and the the film Ball Lightning that I just saw again on a big screen with people and the Ball Lightning Kulovlesk it is is a perfect film. It is an incredible comedy which speaks about really profound things with such a light touch and there's some of the best acting. Josef, I believe this is Josef Abraham's best role in his career. And though this is a film that this is definitely a gem that that people would appreciate and and I truly love. If I would be an American producer, maybe even a small one, I would make another version of this film. I don't know if there there is an English title. About the waiter, the Vrchni Prchni. It's an called Waiter Scaper. This is a story of a of a guy who is working in, in a bookshop 
and he has no money, but he's a womanizer. So he has to pay a lot of money to his ex-wife and wives and everything. The, 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 they have brought children and everything. And one day he, I think he plays violin somewhere in the orchestra for fun. And that because he's so miserable, people taking for a wait and they start to pay him in the restaurant. And he says, he said, oh, this is a very good resource of, of money. And he starts to, to become, to become an imposter and to travel around the country and in this tuxedo and everything and taking money from the people. And then, and this is really enormous in my opinion. This is quite a simple film by, this is written by Zdenek Svirak, I think, no, already. And so this really can be a success. I think that it's a little thin, but I don't think that it's such, such a perfect comedy as a bow lightning, but again, it's the same actor. It's Josef Abraham in the lead role. And there is, it's as what is really well taken is that you can take place anywhere. Didn't, it's not. That's it. That's it. Yeah. I always appreciate the caliber of acting when I watch these Czech films, especially seeing Rudolf Horczynski show up in Mysterious Castle. Oh my gosh. I was just tickled pink. Quite a range coming from the cremator, the sort of the most, but that, that, that's also true that the actors who can act in a comedy are just brilliant actors. That's, let's start there. Teresa, what are you working on these days? I have one screenplay. It was already several times appreciated, but it takes a time to produce it. Count. And this is the, the oh, today everyone talked to the genres. It should be a, could be something like a mystery thrill of in being. Uh, it's happening in 1939, just before the war started. And the hero is really a private detective who, in the same time, has his son in the madhouse and in the psychiatric clinic, and he needs to take this son out of the country before the war starts. But uh, it's a quite a complicated, mysterious story, and it's being made with this feeling we all have that something will, something may happen, and we don't know when and what and how. So this is definitely not a comedy, uh, but then we are just before the end of production of the film about Agnes of Bohemia, who was a Czech, Czech princess in 13th century and a very, very special woman. And we are fascinated by these times, which are in fact very full of culture and very civilized in Prague. And there is a German woman director for the Dagmatic Netflix. So I hope that before the end of the year, we start shooting this. And then we publish our small books and the heritage of my father in my small publishing house. Yes. And this definitely, I would like to, we would like to do something about the Chalipsky next year for this anniversary. So if we can invite you to take part of it a little bit, it would be great. And Irena, of course. Irena, what are you working on right now? Trying to identify some more films that we could release with that crocodile. I just returned from Prague, and so there's lots to fill in. But I'm also a film programmer, and so I'm preparing two retrospectives that 
hopefully we'll tour in America in a couple of years from now. That means which retrospectives? I'll spill the beans then. It's uh, Evald Schorn and Rachitilova films that are not that well known from this master. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. Thanks to you. Thank you. All right, we are back and we're talking about the mysterious castle in the Carpathians. And yeah, I don't know what was going on around this time. So between Emily and Jonathan, you guys found one, two, three other versions of mysterious castle that were all done one in 75, one in 76, and another one in 1981, the same year that mysterious castle in the Carpathians came out. So I don't know what was happening. If copyright was up if it was a centenary but i guess it was a hot property at the time it's interesting that there are two romanian versions like they seem to kind of just embrace that hey this is about us we're gonna make some versions of it it is strange that there are a few adaptations considering the challenge that it poses i think and i i think the Maybe people had just gone through so many other Vern books and this was kind of like one that had not been touched yet. And people just thought, yeah, we can do something with this. And, and I mean, the Romanian one watched it, watched it last night, actually, just as preparation for this. Of course, it's not subtitled in the, in the video that I, I saw. And you know, Emily kindly showed me the, 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 the wiki page where there is quite a detailed synopsis, which was very useful. And as far as I could see, there was a much more political dimension to this one and i think there's a lot kind of in the i guess in the first half of the film or the first hour of the film about uh, it's like about revolutionary politics under habsburg rule and so yeah i guess it goes in a completely different direction really and i think pretty much it's only really the last half hour of the of the romanian version from 81 that follows the events in in the original story so yeah that makes a really fascinating uh, alternative, I think, to this version. I, I would love to see it with with subtitles. Yeah, I think it's only like 17 minutes from the end that he actually goes to the castle in that one. So, <laughs> very different. I wondered while I was watching it, I was just like, is this the same movie? Like, was seeing some similarities, especially the device that was used to capture her in the, the theater and everything. But yeah, I was like, this is definitely very different. And it was odd that the Lipsky version was so much more faithful than this version, but I mean, you're going to take it and do what you want to or need to do with it. The only one that I was able to find subtitles for was the, I think it's the 75 TV movie version. And that is so stuck in the pub for the longest time that I was like, really? Okay. That's how you're going to go with this. But all right. I mean, again, it's their choice. You're going to do what you want to do with it. I recently watched all the subspecies films, which were shot in Romania because there was a new one. And there was like a making of featurette where they interviewed some local Romanians, you know, about vampires. And they were all like, we don't believe in vampires. Like that's for silly, you know, those are silly stories for children. That's stupid Americans create vampires. So I kind of wonder if maybe the Romanian versions, they just shy away from the supernatural and they want it to be more serious. Yeah, that's the impression I got from the the 81 version that, yeah, that there's very, very little sense of the fantastic. I mean, in quite stark contrast, I think, to the to Lipsky's film, which is just abounds with just the most bizarre things. And yeah, this is, it felt very sober and, and uh, yeah, very much kind of 
underplaying the, the, the supernatural or fantastic elements. I would love to find that 76 French version because the stills look crazy. <laughs> and it's two hours. Like, I don't know what they could be doing for two full hours with that. Yeah, when the whole book itself took me four and a half hours to listen to, <laughs> I mean, yeah, what else can you do? I love that in the Lipsky version, you've got Werewolfsville is a destination that people are talking about. And then also when they're having a meal, they're drinking wine from Chateau Dracula from 1880, a very fine vintage. Yeah, it's hard to believe that this was written, that the book was written before Dracula because it, it almost feels like, I think the book in a way feels almost like a parody already, doesn't it? Because there's just so many gothic tropes that are sort of lumped together and it's almost like it was kind of pastiching Dracula before Dracula was actually written. Because I think Gorgs is a kind of like a Dracula figure, Is I think if there is that kind of figure in the in the book, I think it's him. But it, it feels like it was referencing something that didn't exist yet. My favorite scene in the book isn't in the movie, but when the forester and the doctor go to the castle, but it's too late, so they have to sleep outside. And then, you know, they're awoken by the roaring of beasts and these lights that make them look like grimacing corpses. You know, that was just a great, yeah, gothic image. It would have been interesting. Yeah, I, I did like the description of them as corpses and all the, the things that were flying around. And I'm just like, okay. Again, thinking film projection as they're talking about that. It's odd because I'm just starting to do my research again for an episode on Michael Mann's The Keep, only to realize, I'm like, where was that set? That was set in Romania, wasn't it? And I was like, oh yeah, it's set in Carpathian. So I'm like, okay. <laughs> so I'm definitely going to be thinking of the Mysterious Castle and the Carpathians as I rewatch The Keep now, which... I think the keep definitely needs, you know, a good sense of humor. So that I'll be bringing that to it. It has an un unintentional sense of humor. Little old man, Ian McKellen. If it wasn't for him, I think it, it, it works, but I'll, I'll look for your episode. <laughs> the book is set in verse, isn't it? I, I think the, the name of the town. And I think you do get a sense of, a, I guess, at least an attempt at a more realistic setting. And of course, the, the film just gives it this crazy name doesn't it like the werewolves bill or the upper werewolves and it's I think like the that, high werewolves the high literal. werewolves yeah <laughs> <laughs> and i think that is part of that satire isn't it about this I, I guess kind of like western or west european ignorance about eastern europe that you know might as well be a fake place it might as well have this fake language because there's all these preconceptions and you know sort of wrong ideas about this this landscape and yeah he's totally sending that up Werner herzog's nosferatu came out in 79 and was filmed in czechoslovakia the town it was filmed in is Vokalinets, which is like wolf skin so i kind of wonder if radechka saw that and was playing into the you know oh, here's this westerner you know how they see our country <laughs> yeah that's a really good point i just i thought of the the, the tavern you know there's the scene where Jonathan Harker goes to that pub and everybody's, oh, don't go to the castle. Like that kind of had that atmosphere. And we haven't talked about um, in the pub scene with that, the, the old grandpa. Oh, God. Under yeah. The, the sheepskins. <laughs> they kind of raise up with the like Slivovitz or vodka. Just induced <laughs> to keep talking. It's the little sort of files of Slivovitz. The first time we meet Vilja, he's buried under all these leaves and he's got his hand up and he's got his three fingers and there's all those signs that have the three fingers there and i'm like 
Is that some sort of like ward to ward off evil spirits or something? That's kind of what I, I thought. And, you know, and there's one in the window in the count's room too. Yeah, I got that impression. Yeah, that they've been put as like, yeah, as kind of like a, a warning or as, as some kind of, yeah, way to ward off evil. And then I think, again, the Catalica just misreads it, doesn't he? He just says, like, you know, charming sort of folklore or something like that. Charming, you know, folk art or something. I mean, that's that's probably what I would do, too. You know, <laughs> just be like, oh, this is so great. And everybody else, you know, don't go in the dark room. You know, oh, this is so wonderful. The room that they're in, in the castle, or has that, you know, it's like the spy painting, um, or it's like the glass and there's like a man looking in the window, like it just kind of screams like someone's watching you right now. <laughs> I love the thing where he sings so loud that he shatters the microphone and, and eyepiece that they're looking at. So then they have to gas them and then come down from the top. Kind of reminded me of like old boy <laughs> for some reason, just keeping them prisoner in that room. But they only keep them prisoner like overnight. But, you know, I had to do that in order to repair the painting and everything and i love krasinski with the soldering tool that he has on his fake hand that he's repairing everything with that kind of reminded me of something like um r2d2 would have to to make repairs and it's funny how the, the count is so full of himself and, and the singing is you know kind of obnoxious i mean he's just breaking glassware left and right but it also saves him you know so it uh and there's that moment where, you know, Billy is telling him, oh, you, you know, what does your inner artist's voice say? And he's like, oh, my, my voice is just fine. <laughs> but then it, it gets them out of the room yeah, that they're trapped my in. My voice is great. And they, of course, has to start singing again. And you're just like, oh, my God, for God's sakes, dude. <laughs> Ignatz is just, oh, add it to the bill. Like, this happens all the time. <laughs> In a way, I think the, the 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 sad fact that there isn't really a great tradition, or there's not a big tradition of Czech, Czechoslovak horror films, and I think when you watch a film like this, you feel that you know they they could have gone further with that. And I think part of the problem was politics, as usual. That I think there was just a basic distrust or or dislike of horror from the point of view of the authorities, and it's again, I think one of those strange situations. I mean, as with Lemonade Joe, I guess a little bit as well, where you have parody without having a lot of examples of the original genre itself, really. So yeah, I think it's another film for me that just makes me sad that there was not more of a, uh, you know, that there were not more examples of Czech or Czechoslovak Gothic films. I mean, because, you know, it really has all the elements you could want. I mean, of course, Badechka himself tried with Prague Night, which is a really fascinating film from the late 60s, but I feel that it was it was something that could have gone much further. A lot of his work is set in the past, and it wasn't, you think of him as, oh, he, he must just really love old things, but it's really more just, that's what you could get made. Like, it was really difficult to make something set in the present. So, you know, he, he may have done something more like that, but just the environment didn't allow it. And I think Jules Verne was a relatively acceptable writer. I think although he he was a kind of a pulp writer in a way or a genre writer, I guess there was also that there was a sort of educate there's a sort of educational dimension, I guess, to his work, or there's this 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 concern with serious themes like science and so on. So I think he was probably a little bit more acceptable than maybe another type of horror or genre writer. So yeah, I think maybe that helped a film like this get made and 
Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read about attempts to make horror films through the 70s, and I think there was a film that was going to be made about zombies, for instance, set in the Nazi era, set under the occupation, which sounds amazing, but uh, yeah, it always just hit against the... Uh, the, the the sort of cultural restrictions of that period of, of normalization where there was just this 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 distrust or dislike for anything that was considered as decadent or that was considered as morbid or unhealthy so yeah it was just uh something that never happened sadly well wasn't they said for vampire came out the next year so maybe this was kind of leading the way that's true yeah i think there was a bit of I think things did liberalize a bit towards the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. And uh, yeah, that's where you see, yeah, like Ferret Vampire and this film. I think things had got so bad through the 70s. And I mean, the film industry had quite a lot of trouble in the 70s because I think the viewer, you know, the number of viewers was just falling off. And, and, and so I think they realized they had to change things. And um, through the 70s, they had this really kind of, tough guy called Ludwig Thoman, who was the sort of central dramaturge and who was basically the, the kind of central authority who would give his permission or his, his veto to what could be produced. And I think he left his position, I think, in 82. So I think certainly after 82, things did change. But I think even before that, there was some liberalization. So yeah, this was a little bit of a freer time, I think. I you know, wasn't really familiar with much Jules Verne and the only other Jules Verne stuff I've seen is also Czech, you know, Karel Zeman's Invention for Destruction and Baron Munchausen, which Yoshi Berdechka also wrote. So I think that's also why he decided to do this, even though it was just kind of a quick thing, because he was already familiar with Jules Verne. And so so, so there, there was like an acceptance of Jules Verne within Czech culture, because those were such beloved, you know, classics. I think around the time that this film was made, there was a film called Mystery of Steel Town, which is another Jules Verne adaptation. That's all about this town called Steel Town, which is developing. I think it's some kind of nuclear bomb. And it's fascinating contrast with this film because that film is totally politically like on message. I mean, it's, you know, it's very clear that, you know, they are identifying this kind of evil city with, you know, Western capitalism. So yeah, it makes a nice contrast with this film, which has this possibly kind of underlying, you know, subversive element. Yeah, I watched that for some reason. I can't remember what it was. I don't remember caring for it that much, but I do remember there being a couple interesting bits in that Steel Town movie. You should probably say too that this is going to be perhaps by the time this episode is out, I'm not sure, but this is uh going to be Mysterious Castle in the Carpathians is going to be put out on Blu-ray by Deaf Crocodile. So I'm glad that a lot more people will have an opportunity to see this movie and see more Lipsky. I mean, I'm all about more Czech films coming out to the the populace, and I'm so glad that this is one of them that is getting that restoration. So I'm hoping that people will eat it up and want to see more of his stuff or more Czech films in general. So hopefully, fingers crossed that Dinner for Adele will come out one of these days on Blu-ray as well. I've been excited about the stuff Deaf Crocodile's putting out. I think Severin's doing Morgiana and The Ninth Heart soon. And so keep it coming. I I will be buying. <laughs> well, I want to thank my co-hosts, Jonathan and Emily, for joining me today. So Emily, what is the latest with you? Well, I'm about to start another semester of Czech language classes at the T.G. Masaryk School in Chicago. 
they do online as well. Uh, but if you're in the area, they have Czech cultural events and they're just a really great organization. So look them up. And Jonathan, what's the latest with you, sir? I'm really happy that you mentioned about the Deaf Crocodile release because, yes, I, I actually wrote the booklet essay for that. And uh, I agree. I mean, this is maybe something I would say anyway, but yeah, Deaf Crocodile is an amazing company, I think. So yeah, I'm very excited to have been part of that uh, of that release. I also have a chapter coming out soon in a book called Barrendov Studios, a Central European Hollywood. I have an essay on your I Hurts in, in that book, which will come out in October 2023. So maybe out by the time that this uh, podcast is released. A few, few other things that I've been working on too, which hopefully will be released at the end of, end of 2023. Thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows that I work on. They are all available at readingwaymedia.com. Thank you especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world. Music